Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The College Football Fix Podcast. With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. It is the College Football Fix with Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken from USA Today Sports. We are back. We are podcasting again. It is under a new name. We have done this a couple times. We have let the podcast uh, kind of peter out and then brought it back. We took a little pause after the end of uh, the 2020 season, which concluded with Alabama as your national champion. But now that we are into the spring, we're past college basketball, we're bringing it back. We're back, Paul Meyerberg. How does it feel? It feels great to be back. I never really left. Um, I did cover some basketball. My heart wasn't in it. I just have to be honest. I can say that now that it's in the rear view. Um, I was really happy spring football is back. I've been watching some spring football, like on a Saturday. Um, and uh, I'm happy. I'm happy that it's that it's back, that we're like back, that we're back doing this, but also happy that football is back. This was a, the, the period of time between Alabama winning and these teams getting back on the field seems shorter than usual. I'm not sure why that is, but I'm happy. Lots of things are coming back. America's coming back. Vaccines are bringing us back. A lot of, a lot of back, a lot of coming back. What, um, so there's 130 FBS coaches. What number of, of those guys are, are anti-vax? At least I, 25, right? I mean, I'm talking fully anti not anti-COVID vax, but like anti-vax, hard anti-vax. I'd say 25. 25 is, is like a very safe estimate, I think. 20 so that, to 25. That's basically like 20%. One out of yeah, five. Yeah, just about. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the resistance to. No, just just focus on head coaches. I would say it's probably slightly less than that, to be honest. I think it's I think it's a little bit less. I think I think most of them will be vaccinated by the time we end up uh, in the season, if not all of them. Mainly because, honestly, and this is going to be a big issue as we go toward the fall. Like people who do not get the vaccine are still going to be subject to the same COVID protocols they had last year. And I don't think anybody wants to deal with that. Like that, that was sort of, I don't want to say it was an untold story because like literally we told the story, but if you came into close contact with somebody who had COVID and you had to like go quarantine for a week or two weeks before it got cut down, like that was just a real bummer. Like that was a real drag on people. Um, And I know it's gotten a little bit better, but I, I just don't think anyone wants to do that. I don't think people want to get tested every day. And like those are the kind of things you're gonna have to do if you don't get vaxxed. Yeah, and I, I'd be curious. This is way beyond football. I'd just be curious. Um, Cal State system has said they want to vaccinate every single student, faculty, staff member. Curious whether we see that across the country. And and when it comes to football, um, what that would mean at at big schools in Texas or big schools in the Big Ten, just about ensuring, like you said, that you get through a year without any hiccups if you essentially 
ensure or mandate that everybody gets a vaccine, which is good for football to, you know, play 45 games a weekend and not have to worry about games being canceled or, or players being held out. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to have to worry about that th- this fall, uh, but that, that certainly is in the realm of possibility if you have vaccine holdouts to any significant degree. And so I just think a lot of these schools are, are doing their best to, to educate and uh, just doing their best to obviously people who have one type of objection or another, sometimes they just can't be convinced, but uh, I think most of the coaches will do it. I, I've talked to coaches who, you know, they they were concerned early on because like players did, don't want to get the flu shot. Right. Like they, they, they make the flu shot available every year. And like, it's a struggle to get half the team to do it. Um, so, but I do think the numbers will, uh, will, will be better, but, uh, you know, this is a big week, man. We got spring practices, uh, at a lot of schools that are kind of wrapping up. We've got the NFL draft, which is really interesting. Uh, especially, uh, I, I think it's fascinating that you're going to end up with urban Meyer, and Trevor Lawrence joining together in Jacksonville. I, it is maybe the most um, diametrically opposite personality fit between quarterback and head coach in recent memory of football. Yeah. I love that marriage. That's a buddy cop show easily CBS, NBC, Fox. I mean, it's just, it's a no brainer. Um, like we don't want to spend too much time talking about the NFL, obviously, but I think these are two names that college people will always remember. I'm, I'm curious from Urban's perspective. I don't think Trevor Lawrence is going to change who he is for anybody, Urban Meyer or otherwise. Curious from Urban's perspective, and and we may see more about this as as they get like fully into training camp and and you get a million people writing about the team. Curious how he'll change his approach. You know how he'll change how he interacts with players or what he asks of players. Um, Imagining Trevor Lawrence at 18 going to play for Urban Meyer, that's a lot more interesting to me than Trevor Lawrence at 21 because I think Trevor Lawrence is a superstar face of the franchise. He may even have more street cred for the Jags than, than Urban does when he gets taken number one. So, yeah, a really interesting dynamic, and, and I think a lot of us will be watching the Jaguars for those two guys and, and maybe even just for Trevor in particular. Yeah, I always thought the secret sauce for Urban, besides the fact he's a great recruiter and all that, is just – the, the kind of mental voodoo that he was able to perform with, with teams. And if you ever talk to urban, it's always just constant mind games. You know, it's always been this sort of push and pull on guys to, to try to get the best out of them, uh, to try to get them to commit to, you know, be part of the, the, the culture. And, you know, the NFL is just different. Like it's a workplace. You go in, you get your work done, you go home to your family or whatever, and it's not this sort of like all in thing that that colleges try to build where guys are in their building almost every waking second of the day. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I just I, I I did not think when it happened and before it happened that Urban would be a good fit for the NFL. Uh, I still have a lot of reservations about it. There was obviously a misstep. Uh, hiring Chris Doyle, the strength coach, uh, former strength coach from from Iowa, that uh, had some some bad uh, uh, allegations uh, against him in terms of his behavior and stuff he had said to players over the years. But it'll be very interesting. Trevor Lawrence is a heck of a talent, and to try to build a franchise around him, 
I think is a good start, but I don't think it guarantees anything in the NFL. No, but again, pretty calculated for Urban to, to land, take his NFL job and in an area of the world where he's very well-liked and well-respected and, of course, where he has the number one overall pick. So good starting points for him. Um, like he said, I think we'll be peaking at Urban all year. I don't know how it's going to go. Um, when you try to motivate guys who have already achieved the the end game or end goal that you hold over and lord over your, your players at Ohio State and Florida, like, hey, we can maximize you and get you here, here, or here. Yeah, I don't know what the message is and, and how he reaches those guys. But look, like, I think Urban, as much as any college coach who's gone to the NFL history, is going to walk in there and have, you know, the respect of those guys. Because so I think the, he's a known commodity, has achieved a, a, an amazing amount of success. And, um, I mean, maybe some cynicism and a little bit of, you know, a jaded start because he needs to prove that he knows how to connect with these guys. But he does have some street cred. So, yeah, really fascinating for sure to see how Urban plays out. Yeah, we'll be keeping up with the NFL draft, see where some of these guys we've watched over the last few years end up. But let's get to the big news of the last several days in college football. Paul, on Friday evening, I was uh, in my car, and I got an email alert pop up on my phone from the college football playoff. And I said to myself, oh, I better read that right now to see what they're saying. And, you know, I look at the email and it says uh, college football playoff management committee concludes annual spring meeting. And I, I start scrolling through it and it's got quotes from Bill Hancock about seating capacity this fall and what they're planning on doing with uh, the 2022 championship game in Indianapolis. And then I scroll some more and they're praising Miami who hosted it for last season and the Rose Bowl uh, for moving the game to Texas. And then all of a sudden, on sort of the bottom, hidden, buried in this email, I see a paragraph that says, in addition, the committee received a briefing from a working group of four of its members charged with considering options for the future format of the playoff for the management committee's review. Hancock said, first and foremost, the working group conveyed to the management committee that it continues to support and believe in the 14 playoff as it is currently constituted. In its analysis, the working group has reviewed some 63 possibilities for change. These included 6, 8, 10, 12, and 16 team options, each with a variety of different scenarios. The group informed the management committee it continues to work, and it anticipates making a report to the management committee about the future format at an upcoming meeting. And when I read this, Paul... I basically stopped in my tracks and said, I need to run this through the Bill Hancock BS filter. And on the other side of it, the only conclusion I can draw is that they're expanding the playoff. Yeah. So the uh, first thing, we always knew they're expanding the playoff, right? And I think there's a, there's a quote in there from Hancock that essentially goes along the lines of, and I'm, and I'm going to paraphrase, um, we're evaluating these options. Um, whatever we decide to do probably won't happen until after 2025 when the 12-year con original contract expires. Um, that may be true. I mean, that's a long way away. I think they probably feel some sort of pressure based on the decline in ratings to, to put something together sooner rather than later. But yeah, I, I guess that we always knew there were going to be changes. If it doesn't happen in 2025, this is just bluster. But we are four years out from that. 
and probably two years out from like having the discussions about, Hey, what are we going to do in 2026 if things were going swimmingly right now? So it's definitely an interesting uh, public talking point that they would issue this in, in a news release. Um, I like the 63, you know, different permutations. That's like when you go to a, like a burger joint, they're like, you can have a thousand different styles of burger. And it's like, Oh, I can have one with mushrooms or one with onion. And you're like, well, it's still just a burger. So, you know, I don't know what kind of different options they're looking at. It's, it's eight or it's 16, right? I don't, I don't know what six or 12 would really look like. All right. Well, let me just go back to a point you made about 2025. And, and it is true that the contract is, is set until then. But the one thing about the history of this sport and the history of Bill Hancock, and you go back to the BCS when they decided to do the playoff, just to me, the fact that they're even acknowledging at this point that they're discussing anything to me says they, they are going to do it and they're probably going to do it pretty soon. So, and this is not reported. So don't say that Dan Walken is reporting this because I'm not, I'm just saying my own personal opinion is that, that by next year's championship game in 2022, when they have that meeting in Indianapolis of the management committee, they will announce and decide that they're going to expand the playoff and they will do a, you know, basically like a couple year lead up time. So they'll announce it at the end of the 2021 season. They'll play 22, 23. And I think they could probably start with whatever new format they have in 2024. That is, that is my prediction, not what I'm reporting. That's my prediction. It wouldn't be that hard to pull off. Like it's, it seems complicated, but the truth is, I mean, in addition to, reworking contracts and scheduling it all. Obviously that takes some legwork, but in terms of making the change, I mean, just the, the, the board of managers needs to vote unanimously to change it. That's 11 guys, 11 people. Um, so I think if you can get on the same page on that, it's, it's as simple as agreeing that this is in the best interest of the sport, which I think everyone agrees that it is. Um, yeah. I, and I think that's a really good point. And, and 2025 is, I mean, comes quicker than we always think, you know, I mean, that's right around the corner for a lot of us, but um being out in the open like this, yeah, it's, it's an enormously meaningful step for the playoff to be taking and for Hancock to be taking and, and the Board of Governors because once it's discussed, it's you're, you're not sticking with four, and I think that's just blatantly obvious yeah, that you, you don't, don't discuss this with the goal of sticking with the, with the status quo. Yeah, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube at, at this point. Right. But, but it highlights just how stupid this sport is. That like, like you just said, everybody understands and everybody knows and essentially agrees – the playoff has to expand. So why can't they just say that? Like, why can't they just figure it out? This is not, to me, rocket science. Obviously, there's a lot of logistics and things that you do have to talk about and and debate and and figure out what what is the best way to do it. And obviously, ESPN's going to be involved to some degree because they have the contract and they're going to be paying for it. So they're at the table as well. But like, just the, the the whole cat and mouse game and, and and just even pretending, even pretending like four is still the best for now is stupid because we all know it's not. It's not it's it's been a vast improvement over what we had with the BCS. Vast improvement. But let's not pretend that it has been this grand slam success when we see the trajectory of the ratings, we see the fact that the sports become more stratified than ever. We see that 
it's the same six teams who are getting the, the, the bids every single year. And the reality is that people are looking at it and they're, they're a little bit panicked about, about the, the way it's impacted the sport. Yeah. Uh, there's like this argument for what is the, what's the best way to decide the national championship just in a vacuum. But we, may, we may find that four is the best way to settle because we may get even more blowouts in, in what we're call the quarterfinals if it's an 18 bracket. And we may just find that eventually the cream rises to the top and, and it's Alabama Clemson and we're just wasting time. But that doesn't mean that the best way and the best thing for the sport isn't to eventually ditch this four team model and try to be more inclusive. Um, we spoke last year and I think it was about the time when Cincinnati was beating the drum about, Hey, we're good enough to make the playoff, which, you know, they might've been, who knows. Um, but the takeaway that we had from that, if I remember correctly, was this is Cincinnati beating the drum for Cincinnati, but for guys like Oresco out of the American and for even Craig Thompson at the, in the Mountain West, you beat the drum for your teams because eventually we're going to go to eight. And if you bang the drum enough, you'll eventually say that, uh, convince people that the group of five teams need to have one of those automatic bids in the, in the eight. So if we're like going to really kind of envision out what eight would look like, it's my belief very strongly that you got to have five conference champions, a group of five, and then two at large. And we're putting the cart way ahead of the horse. But if that's your 18 model, I think that's a fantastic step for addressing the issues that you mentioned before, which is uh, top heaviness and the kind of belief that there are 40 to 50 power five teams that are playing for nothing, even though they believe that they're playing for national championships. That model that you just laid out is the obvious one that makes sense probably and probably the one that they'll go to. I think you could make an argument for 12 where you just are sort of including more teams. You're giving the top four a buy and that's the reward for finishing in the top four to quote unquote, preserve the regular season. Uh, that certainly makes some sense, but yeah, I think the eight team model, you have automatic conference champions who, who get in. So you don't have to even worry about that debate. Um, and all the stupid things that we hear the committee chair talk about every Tuesday during the season, like all that stuff just kind of goes out the window and it's just whoever wins the conference title is, is in. And then obviously there's going to be two, two more teams and you have to figure out who the best group of five is and somebody has got to do that. And I'm sure there'll be a committee and all that kind of stuff, but, but it'll probably be fairly obvious in, in, in most years. Um, I'm sure those last at large bids, those two at large bids, probably fairly contentious at times. And I would say that in that format, the most likely outcome is that in most years, you'd have the same final four you'd probably end up with anyway under the current system. But I I don't think it will always be that way. And the other part is there are, I think, some teams who've been left out of the playoff who, who could have won a game had they gotten in. And third... One of the big advantages or one of the reasons why I think the playoff has kind of taken the form it's taken is that once you get those four teams, they have that, that you know, three-week, four-week lag period. They're rested and well-prepared. And so they show up in those semifinal mm-hmm. games. And, of course, the better team is going to win when they have pr- relative health and a lot of time to prepare. I think – the best thing that could happen in terms of if you want potential upsets 
is to shorten the amount of time between the conference championship games and those quarterfinals. And then you go from the quarters to the semis where you only have a week to prepare. I do think you could, you could potentially see some upsets. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I totally agree with you. And I, and I hope that when this does come to fruition, that they'll do that. They'll bring things closer to December 8th or 5th, whenever traditional final Saturday is and not let this thing go into, you know, second half of January. Not that they would compete with the Super Bowl by going deeper into the month, but hope that they move it up a week or two rather than moving it back a week or two. Because like you said, not just the fact that less prep time, but as the as the games go on and you're the eighth seed and you're playing one game and then two games, you know, you're developing momentum, the kind of momentum you see in the NFL playoffs where a wild card team can get hot and make a run. Um I don't think that invalidates the national championship process. I think it brings more interest and, and more intrigue. So, yeah, I mean, it's all a no-brainer. It's all kind of hypothetical, but at the same time, it's a win-win for everybody. And you mentioned, like, the Tuesday night calls on ESPN and the conference calls when a series of very qualified and smart ADs trip over themselves to not say something stupid and inevitably fail. Like, if you have this automatic five-team bid um, – like automatic five teams from the five conferences go in. You're like removing all the guesswork, all the dumb things that Jeff Long and Rob Mullins and Kirby Hoke that have said, and you just make it simpler for everybody. It's just a total win for everybody. And I think financially, obviously, it'll be more of a windfall, even more of a windfall. Yeah, I think it's a no-brainer. I think that's where they will end up. And there's going to be, I think, some interesting discussions over just sort of how it looks. I mean, do you have the the semifinals in, in those bowl games still, or, or do you keep them on campus? I think we know if, if it's eight that the quarterfinals will be on the campus of the higher seats. And, you know, one of the arguments against expansion right. I, I had always heard was people would say, okay, but do you, re- you do realize that like getting a football team traveling to Clemson where there's not a lot of hotels or whatever, like that's really hard to do in December on short notice. And I think, like, what happened this past season where literally you had games scheduled on a Wednesday and played on a Saturday in some of these college towns totally debunks that. Like, you can do things Absolutely. on short notice in this sport. So that talking point yeah. is done. There is a talking point about academics that has to be figured out. Like, it's I, – I, I mean, people can roll their eyes, but there, there are semester finals that happen in December at most of these schools, so you do have to sort of – have some balance there. Uh, and, and I do think there's a safety issue. You know, what happens when you add another game onto these, these bodies um, and these guys are, are not getting paid. And that is a concern for me that you're adding more risk of injury, more stress and more potential risk. Yeah, good point. I, I mean, they may be getting paid, in some form or shape by 2025, 2024, whatever. But yeah, I mean, these are the academics and the health and safety thing. They're like topics that everyone writes about like once every December and then kind of ignores. But um, yeah, if you're going to expand this thing, those are two central topics of, of interest, I think, to presidents and chancellors in particular who would have to approve it. I think they would need to know what what steps the playoff is going to take or, or, you know, the FBS as a whole will, will take to, make sure that December isn't just, you know, a series of ESPN interviews and football games, because that is a, a, a key time of the year. Do you worry at all about if you go to eight, that kind of the other bowl games are going to be even less 
of a commodity than they are now? Um, I can't imagine they could get much less. I don't think it would have too much of an impact. I mean, no one really cares about traditional bowl play anymore. Um, traditional bowl play is like, unless you're, you know, Purdue or, or something like that, going to a bowl game or Rutgers, it's just like, yeah, okay, we're going to Boca or we're going to Shreveport. It just, it doesn't mean anything like it used to, um, which is, you know, a statement in itself about the changing standards of, of what, or what is not successful for a power five team at this point. But I, I wouldn't really worry about that. I mean, I don't know if based off 2020, you're going to see bowls, the number of bowl games get cut down anyway, just for financial reasons and, and the inability to make ends meet without games last year, without a lot of them. So yeah, I, I wouldn't worry about that too much. I mean, not like anyone cares right now. They, they can't, I don't think care any less about the independence bowl or the weed eater bowl. All right, let's move on to a different topic. Uh, There's some new rules that uh, the college football management or, or oversight committees put out, including a change to overtime. Uh, can you uh, explain that one to me? Cause I'm not sure I totally understand why they're doing what they're doing. It all has to do with the fact that there was a seven overtime game in the SEC. And, and here we are now changing the rules, like in baseball, where it's, you know, a guy starts on second base and extra innings, which I think is trash. So what we're going to do starting next year, um, once you get to the second OT now, you got to start running two pointers. Used to be after three. And then after two, beginning with a third overtime, it's just going to be alternating two-point plays. Like, you're not going to have to start at the 25. You're going to start at the two and a half, and you're going to try to put in a two-pointer. So whoever gets the the stop wins. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think this is an overreaction. Yeah, I do too. I don't – and I, I really don't know what the I, – I think this is too far. Look, like how many of these overtime games went to seven? We had a ton of overtime games. Let's see. How many longest overtime games – college football history um very few there's been a handful that have gone more than three overtimes it's it's not very many extremely rare um so i i don't i'm not quite sure i mean it's like um it's like if this is a health and safety thing hey we want to have fewer plays you just had guys play for 60 minutes and get hit in the head 40 times. Like all of a sudden, like, all right, we'll just, we'll just run a couple two-pointers instead of playing in overtime. The, the genie's out of the bottle at that point. So I'm not sure if it works or makes sense from that perspective. It will shorten games. Um, if you want to look at it from, like, television, hey, let's get in and out in less than four hours. Okay. But the number of OT games aren't that, it aren't that many OT games where you need to worry about it. So, yeah, I'm not sure where it's totally coming from. And I'm not sure if, if coaches like it or not. I, I really don't know. It's a good question to ask if coaches are in favor of it from a, from a schematic or, or like, you know, just overall perspective or whether I, they think that they'd be better off playing regular. OT. I got to say, I would just prefer, honestly, if they just said, we'll play two overtimes and that's going to be it. And if there's no winner, then it's a tie. I would just prefer that. Whoa. You, you're, you're advocating for going back to ties? I am advocating for going back to ties. Can you imagine if there were ties on people's record and we're talking playoff and we've got to like do some sort of like, you know, I think it'd be great. I think it'd be pretty fun. Um, yeah. I mean, you want to talk about outrage. You want to talk about outrage, people getting outraged, valuing a tie versus a loss. Mm, yeah. That would be pretty bad. I think, um, yeah, it's not going to make overtime as fun anymore. You know, there's a question like stats wise, what are you going to do about stats? I guess you'll count the first two and then, starting with the two pointers, that's not going to count towards your touchdowns or whatever. 
Um, yeah, I like when games go to seven OTs. I like when a game goes for five hours and, and the other game is put on Fox business because A&M LSU is in the ninth overtime. I'm in favor of that. College football is a wacky, dumb, stupid, idiotic sport. Let's keep it that way. Well, and that's the thing is like we remember that game because of that. And, and also because it happens so rarely, right? So I, I don't like always making rules that are built around the extreme outlier example of something. I, 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 hate, I just hate that philosophically. And, and that, that was the extreme outlier, and it, it seems like they just have decided that, um, that they can't have it, even if it's once every seven years that something like that happens. Um, there was also some talk about guys faking injuries and how to deal with that. I think that's an, something that's almost impossible to get your arms around. And they didn't really do anything, right? They were just like, yeah, we're, we're going to propose that uh, a school can request a review of, of an injury like two days later. It doesn't do anything for anybody. It's like every year they talk about injuries. They talk about like low, like uh, cup blocks or blocks within the fi- like a five-yard window. Um, they talk every year about illegal man downfield. They don't do anything about it. So I don't know what this does. I mean, we know, like, right now, any coach, certainly in, in a Power 5 league, can send into the league office a video of anything. Here's a late hit from this guy. This is a cheap shot. We thought this was not targeting, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you can always petition and, and send in these tapes to get a, you know, a review from your conference. So I, I don't know what this does. I don't think this is a, a deterrent necessarily because I don't know what the penalties would be, but why would you be deterred from – faking an injury when the penalty comes on a Wednesday after you play on a Saturday. So I I can't make any sense of it. There'll be a lot of nice letters of apology coming from the conference offices, I guess. Here's my favorite of the, here's my favorite of this, uh, of these rule changes. It's under the header points of emphasis. Coaches who coaches should not enter the field of play or leave the team area to debate officiating decisions. Those who do so will have committed an automatic unsportsmanlike conduct foul. I'd like to see if they're going to uphold this one because no I mean, chance. how many no times chance. is Brent Venables going to get it? I mean, there, there's no way they'd hold that up or Nick Saban. I mean, so they do this every year, every year. It's like very small. Oh gosh. You're going to penalize very Jimbo small Fisher rule for changes coming out to yell at a ref. I'm sorry. Like, I just don't see it. I hope it happens in a big game in a big moment with the big name coach and a big name program. That's what I'm hoping for. I'm sure it won't, but. Yeah, these are all very um, hard to define uh, rule changes. Certainly when you say points of emphasis, that can mean any number of things. So another thing that's come up, just as kind of I've been catching up with stuff going on in college football, talking to some coaches, talking to some administrators, is there's a lot of concern about roster management right now. Uh, One of the things that happened during the COVID pandemic was that the NCAA, and it was the right thing to do, is they allowed guys to basically use that year as an extra year of eligibility. Uh, seniors could come back and, and play another season this, this year. Uh, but the, the, um, the waiver that the, that the NCAA gave schools to expand their rosters is going to, is going to expire. And so in other words, there are plenty of teams out there with more than 85 scholarship players on their roster right now, but by next year, they're going to have to get back to 85 and there's not really going to be any sort of 
phasing that out. It's just you got to get back to the to your numbers next year. So, like I was talking to one coach, and they were like, "Yeah, we may have a recruiting class of eight kids." Mm-hmm. And it's really going to screw the high school seniors potentially who are looking at getting scholarships for, for next season, because there's just not going to be as many spots available to them because teams are going to have to try to manage their, their numbers better. Um, are you hearing the same thing and kind of what, 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 I mean, I think this is potentially like, like a bomb that could go off in college football this season. Yeah. So for 2022, you've got to get back to 85 and there's a lack of direction for coaches and there's enormous um, um, feeling of uh, helplessness about what the next step might be. Um, The issue, as you said, it's not just the super seniors who are the guys who are coming back for a sixth year or a fifth year in 2021. Those guys are just on top of the 85. They don't count towards your 85. So you could conceivably have 110 players on scholarship, though nobody does uh, for 2021. Issue for 2022 and beyond is you have freshmen through juniors, current freshmen through juniors, who have the option of regaining a year of eligibility, right? So then you look at starting doing the math, 2023, 2024, what, what is our class going to look like? What are our recruiting numbers going to look like? Um, a place like Oklahoma is trying to um, address that by staggering from 16 traditional recruits in the two signing days this year with uh, currently six, maybe seven, maybe eight guys in the transfer portal who are there for a year or two years just to kind of spread the numbers out and address the situation. Um, Yeah, you you did not overstate it. I think this has a potential, if unaddressed, to to really be damaging not just to programs but to student-athletes, to current student-athletes who, because, you know, they're the third-string tight end and the team is at 88 scholarships, might be asked to – to find another opportunity against his wishes, perhaps, and against recruits who who might not be able to go to the school of their choice because the numbers aren't there. So I think the answer is, Dan, like every school, I think players need to decide now if they're going to accept that year of eligibility. I know that's a lot to ask, but if you knew that now, um, you could just be told, hey, this year you can go up to 94 scholarships. In 2023, you can be at 89. And then by 2024, you got to be back down to 85 to give teams time to get to that step. Because if you got to be by 85 by August 1st of 2022, um, the, the math there is, is not good for anybody. Yeah. And I, look, I don't like cry for any of these coaches. They make a lot of money. It's their job to deal with all these sort of inconveniences and their lives are, have been totally upended by, the transfer portal anyway, like trying to manage a roster right now, whether it's in college football or college basketball is, is a disaster. Like it's, it's, it's almost impossible. Uh, But you just kind of have to kind of have to figure it out and do it. And the ones who are good will figure it out. Uh, But I, I do feel for kids who, you know, may not have a spot at the school they want to go to who would otherwise be willing to take them like that to me is fundamentally wrong. And it doesn't really seem like there's a lot of urgency to, to address that end of it. And I just think it's a shame. Yeah. And I think this is going to really pick up steam as a topic after June. June is going to be like the wildest four weeks of recruiting of our lifetimes. And you get every campus available open for official visits on the first through the 27th. You got 56 travel days per staff to be out and evaluate. You have the ability for unofficial visits to be worked out 
on campus. So guys in the transfer portal, 2022 kids, 23 kids, they're on a scholarship. Um, I think that's occupying a lot of mental headspace right now from talking to people for a story I'm writing. But um, yeah, I, I do think this is something that needs to be addressed and, and preferably addressed before the end of the 2022 cycle, because then that will give teams an idea of how many guys they can sign this year, um, which I think is a pressing issue, especially when the floodgates are going to open in terms of verbal commitments for that entire month of June as kids get back onto campus. All right, Paul, you said you have been watching spring football. Uh, you've been consuming, I'm sure, a lot of the, the top teams when they're on their conference network. Anything uh, hitting you right in the face in terms of what you've seen so far? Yeah, I, I hate to be the person who just talks about Alabama. We talk about Alabama a lot. But I think that was a game that if you are watching spring football, had your interest because you wanted to see how Bryce Young would look. Um, I thought Bryce Young, who technically a sophomore, I guess we don't know how, what we're going to call these guys. Sophomore, but could be a freshman. Um, he looked really good. And I think that's one thing that stands out is you're at this time of year and Nick Saban, like every other coach, certainly of his generation, likes to hold things off in terms of anointing your next QB. And it's obvious. And he's even almost said nearly as much. He's like 98% of the of getting there to just announce it. That Bryce Young is going to be the guy for Alabama. So uh, that was last weekend. I thought that was really interesting. Moving forward, um, you know, a couple of Pac-12 teams coming up. Um, I think the Big Ten is getting close to being done, but there are a couple of teams still out there who, who you want to check out. So I'm sure people will have – I mean, what else are you doing? Saturday in April, it's like 58 degrees out here in Brooklyn. There's not a whole lot still going on, so I'm happy to sit down and watch football. I did see, or at least I – Felt like I detected coming out of the Clemson spring game you know, that maybe there wasn't as much love for DJ Uyunglele as as maybe I might have expected. Uh, that there may be some concerns, or is that just Clemson kind of lowering expectations? Yeah, I think it's the latter. Uh, we saw what he did last year as a true freshman in that environment. I don't think there's any question about his ability, his, his arm strength, how he's going to fit in the offense. But yes, I do want to agree with you on one point. It was a very, very quiet spring for Clemson. And I'm not quite sure why. I think it might just be because there's no stakes. So I think people on a national level are not as interested in, in just focusing in on a team like Clemson in the spring when there's, when there's, you know, they're not playing Georgia Tech on Saturday or whatever. But they were very, they got in and out. So Clemson's still an enigma just based off what we know or what we don't know. I don't think DJ is a question mark. I, I think he's the, the foundation piece for a team that will probably still win the ACC and, and make a playoff run. Yeah, and obviously, uh, you know, there's some first-year coaches who I'm going to be really interested to to track over the summer and kind of whip, especially in the recruiting. I mean, Sark's off to a really good start in recruiting at Texas. Um, you know, I think Auburn in the Brian Harson era is – going to be really fascinating because i just i don't know what to expect uh for for what that's going to look like i i I find it hard to sort of conceptualize uh and then um you know and then obviously you you go in with hot seat guys clay helton at usc like this is a a year where you know are we going to be back in the same place we've been where they get to the championship game and they're kind of just good enough for him to keep his job or is the bottom going to fall out to a degree that, that forces USC to make a change? Like, I think these are kind of the topics that, uh, that I'm most interested in anyway. And, oh, by the way, LSU, 
I think is coming into a pretty crucial year for Ed Orgeron, not only given the fact that they sucked last year, but there's just a lot of other stuff going on at LSU right now. None of it is particularly good. And um, I think he better win. Yeah, he better win. That's for sure. Um, LSU was a team I was going to mention. I had one other team that I've already forgotten. I did want to ask you this, though. Uh, we mentioned NFL draft very briefly. I still feel connected to the college guys. It's like not until you get drafted and are seen in that uniform do I just fully let you go. Um, Lawrence, to me, is and has been just a no-brainer, number one. Who's your next guy on the board? And if you're the Niners at three, are you taking Mac Jones over Justin Fields? Um, that's the big debate, obviously, from what I could tell. What are your thoughts on that as we wrap up? You know, I find it really hard to put on my – NFL evaluator hat, especially when it comes to quarterbacks, because I just, I just am always wrong. I mean, I'm not always <laughs> wrong. I'm not always wrong, but like, I just don't, I think it's such a crapshoot. I think it's so difficult. I think, look, it's difficult for the people who know a whole lot more about it than me uh, to, to, to get all this stuff, right? Like even as awesome and talented as we all know, Trevor Lawrence is, like, if you were to sit here and tell me that in 10 years he's not the best quarterback in this draft, that there's somebody else, and I don't even know anyone specifically, just somebody else who gets drafted this year quarterback has a better career than, than Trevor Lawrence, I'd, I'd just, like, shrug my shoulders and say, isn't that kind of what happens in this thing? Yeah, when you go to Jacksonville, that tends to happen. The only <laughs> thing worse would be play for a Washington football team. Um yeah, it's all a crapshoot. I just look at Justin Fields as a guy who has earned just earned a little more respect. Yeah. I know every year there's one QB who gets ragged on, and it's like kind of soft criticism because he's still going to be a top whatever pick, top 12, whatever. I do feel like he's been unfairly portrayed as as not ready for NFL, while Mac Jones is, is a rocket scientist. I think there's a lot to that, but I think Fields warrants a little bit more uh, hype than what he's been getting. Well, the thing about Fields is he, he's, he's got the pedigree that, that suggests he's going to make it. Like, he's always been the best ever since he was a kid. Like, it was him and Trevor Lawrence side by side in the state of Georgia coming up through, mm-hmm. you know, high school and then in college. And, like, it's to me, he's not had any sort of big misstep in terms of his play that would take him off track. Obviously his freshman year at Georgia, it, it, it was kind of a a wasted year, but once he got to Ohio state and he wasn't perfect every single game, by the way, neither was Trevor Lawrence. Like there's some stuff on tape from Trevor Lawrence that you could look at and, and, and put a question mark by as well. Um, None of these guys are, are finished products or perfect players. Like, but it's not like Justin Fields came out of nowhere and had one great year. And now people are nitpicking him. I mean, he's been at Mm -hmm. the head of the class every step of the way. And I do sort of just wonder like, well, what has happened to change that in the last six months? Like that to me, that that's, I don't want to say it's wrong because time will tell if it's wrong, but to me, it's the guys who jump up out of nowhere who scare me more. I agree with you. I agree with you. Justin Fields. I would draft him. He's my number three guy for sure. And I'm sorry. Just who, who do you have? Number two. 
Oh, I mean, in terms of overall players, I think Sewell is would be in mix for number two. I think. Uh, but, but you got Fields as the number two. You got Fields as the number two quarterback. I think so, and this is not a disrespect to Mac Jones. I, I just, I would feel better about handing over controls of a franchise to Justin Fields personally. That would be my, that'd be my take on it. All right, well, that's a good note to end our return podcast on. We will be back soon with more content for you guys. Please uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app. Hit that like button. Leave a positive comment. It helps get the word out, helps boost us up the charts so we can reach more people's phones. All right, Paul, thanks for coming on. It's the College Football Fix with Paul Meyerberg and Dan Walken from USA Today Sports. We'll talk to you next time. This is the College Football Fix podcast from USA Today Sports.